Welcome to the KCPS 9 Digital Studios Podcast. I'm Enrique Cerna. I have microphones and I do travel, and right now I am in the offices of the 33rd President of the University of Washington, Anamari Kausi. On October 13th, 2015, she made history and broke barriers when the UW Regents announced her appointment. On that day, she became the UW's first permanent female president, its first Latina president, and its first openly gay president. Anna Maracasi is no stranger to the university. She came here in 1986 as an assistant professor and worked her way up the ranks. And when Michael Young left to become president of Texas A&M, Kausi was named interim president, and that opened the door for her to become the top dog. Anna Maricarsi, welcome, and congratulations. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm pleased uh, to have you here in my office. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And oh, by the way, I'm a coog, but who says that cougs and huskies can't get along? You know, I have a dog and a cat, and they adore each <laughs> other, except for the apple cup. Yeah. Um, well, we, you know, we really are on the same side. Yeah, there you go. You know, we, we all care about the state, and that's all that really matters. Exactly. So from the moment that you became the interim president, you made it very clear that you wanted this job. Why? Okay, it's not like I ever set out, I want to be a university president or president of the University of Washington. But I think when I did step into the role, um, quite frankly, relatively soon after, I felt like as a university, we had a lot of momentum. We were getting a lot of things done. And when you change um, who's at the front, you always lose some of that momentum. And I really wanted to see us you know, go forward. I've been here for a very long time, uh, about 30 years. I've now been here longer than any place else combined. And I've seen a lot of changes at the university most of them very positive. I've got deep relationships here, and I think that all of that will help me as we move forward. Now, you've also made it clear that you want to remain in the classroom or tied to the classroom. You want to continue teaching. Why is that important? Well, I came actually to the job, or my desire to be a university professor really came more from the teaching side of things. Um, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a teacher growing up. There's something about being in the classroom, and at this point, I do it every other year. I was actually teaching a freshman seminar on leadership uh, at the moment that I became interim president. It really is a kind of a sense of grounding. It reminds you of why we're all here. Um, it feeds my head and my heart. It, it gives more than it takes. And it keeps you connected, I imagine. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like I say, it gives me connected to students, um, but also to just the purpose, this larger purpose of education. When you came here back in 1986 uh, as a professor, um, did you have it in your mind that, that you wanted to be able to one day move up the ranks or become involved in kind of the, really the administration side of things? You know, actually, I never particularly thought about being an administrator uh, for reasons that are complicated and sometimes hard to understand from, from the outside. We talk about it as going over to the dark side. 
<laughs> and so it really wasn't something that I thought about. Uh, although, in fact, I started doing some administrative work very early, um, right after I became tenured, so after being here three years, um, they asked me if I would be director of clinical training, which is a program within the psychology department. Uh, and then later on, I became chair. My first, I guess, real administrative position would have been as chair of American Ethnic Studies, and which wasn't even my home department, but I really thought that I could do some good there. And I think that that's, you know, one thing kind of leads to another. Uh, there's, a, there's a saying out there that, you know, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. And to some degree, I think that I was tracked in that direction. Uh, but it's mostly been because I've wanted to, for me, it's been, it's been less about the position and more about wanting to get something done. It's rare, isn't it, that uh, someone works themselves up the ladder in a university that, and maybe has stayed there as long as you have, uh, and then gets the top job? It is actually rather unusual. It happens a bit more often in privates uh, than in publics, but I think that having an internal president is not the most common route, and even when you do, having one that's been there since an assistant professor is even rarer. I think it's incredibly special. Um, and, you know, I did make it uh, very clear to the regents when um, we were talking about this job that I was going to stay here regardless. Uh, for me, this is home. Uh, I th you know, I've said it before, I, you know, I'm an immigrant to this country. I grew up in a house where home was always kind of this mythical thing that you know, could never be touched and felt, and this is my home. That means something to me. I, I wouldn't want to be doing this anyplace else. Let's talk about your life and where you grew up. Um, you were born in Cuba. Mm -hmm. You came to the United States with your parents. Uh, Actually, we came separate. My parents separate? came first, and okay. then they sent for my brother and me. But it was really in the, in the midst of the revolution when yes. Fidel Castro had taken yes. over, and, and your family decided to, to leave, as many other families did. Your father was the Minister of Education mm -hmm. in Cuba? Yes. And then you come to a new country, and particularly for him and your mother, starting from the bottom. Yep. And they worked in a factory? Yeah, both uh, my... The longest jobs that, uh, that they held while I was growing up is my mom worked in a factory making tennis shoes. My dad worked in a factory making dress shoes. How, that, how did that experience, and particularly knowing their story, and what you may remember as a, what, a three-year-old, hold you? Well, you know, it's interesting in that how I view the story has changed over time. I mean, when I was a kid, yeah, people talked about things that had happened in Cuba and whatever, but you know, I was just a kid growing up and this is the life that I knew. I was three when I came here. So, and I never felt that we were particularly poor. Um, I actually don't think I realized um, how, quote, poor we were until I was filling up the equivalent of the FAFSAs and realized that, you know, gee, I qualified for every piece of financial aid on the planet because, you know, there was always food on the table um, the necessities were always met. And, you know, I was going to school with other kids more or less in the same boat. As I became older, I really began to, to realize 
um, what this must have been like for them and the real sacrifices that they made to make sure that my brother and I did have not only food on the table but, but great educations. And it really also made me think a lot about how the power of education is so much more than just a job. For all the time that I knew that I lived with my parents, their jobs were fairly unrelated to their education. But the fact that they were broadly educated, my mom didn't have a college degree, but certainly my father did, added to the richness of our lives in so many different ways to the, their commitment to citizenship. Um, my father was very involved in making sure that other Cuban kids knew about their history and their culture because he felt that it, it bred pride. And quite frankly, for a very long time, he wanted us to be Cuba ready because we would go back. And so it really is part of why I really think about a college education as clearly preparation for making a living, but also preparation for living a very full life. Have you ever been back? I've actually been back a couple of times. What was so, that like? Um, it was fairly emotional. I, you know, kind of tried to convince myself that it was just like, it would be just like, you know, going to any other country um, because I, my memories were not, I didn't have any memories, but, you know, I got off the plane and people looked like me, they talked like me, they walked with their hands the way that I do, and it was unquestionably um, my country. As, as the United States is also my country, but I could really feel um, the dualness of it in some ways. I both felt my Americanness and my Cubanness, but it's a beautiful country. I grew up with my parents telling me that the greens were greener and the blues were bluer, and I thought, yeah, right, but they were. Very technicolor because of the, the direct sunlight, uh, very different than the Pacific Northwest with its more muted palette, so um, it, but also surrounded by water, and you know, I, I can see the connections. As you think about, there have been changes now in trying to uh, get a closer relationship between the United States and Cuba. You know, some like it, some don't. How do you feel about it? Well, I would not have returned to Cuba while my parents were alive. Um, it would have been disrespectful to them. And I understand the Cubans who feel, the Cuban-Americans who feel very strongly that we should not have relationships with that country while um, Fidel Castro um, is in charge. But I don't think it's had the desired effect. I really think that by isolating Cuba the way we have, that in fact it's entrenched um, all the things that we don't like about it. And I think that this opening up and the having more relationships, I'm very cautiously optimistic that in fact it'll be those things that, that, that open things up. You know, I, I have no illusions. It's, uh, there are human rights issues in that country and um, it, I want it to change, but I think it's much more apt to move more in the direction of democracy. 
with open. There also are a lot of things that we can learn from the country in terms of healthcare, in terms of educational system, in terms of really um, doing a, in some ways, a better job of caring for the most vulnerable. You have broken a number of barriers in being appointed to this position. Uh, the first female that is the permanent, named permanently to this job, the first Latina, the, the first openly gay uh, person to become president here. What does that mean to you? Well, on a personal level, um, being the first in at least a very long time, if, 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 if ever, permanent president from the inside uh, probably means the, both, the most to me because it means that the leadership is us. Uh, and I think it's a really a vote of confidence in the university and the direction that we're going to all together. You know, I think in terms of the other, if my attaining this position makes some young boy or girl or teenager um, that is lesbian or gay or Latino or African American, feel more inspired, more able to achieve, I think that's fabulous. I you know, think that as university professors, we are in the position of being role model. And if I can be a role model to a broader group of individuals than might be the case if I were more traditionally you know, white and male, the better. I want to talk more about race, and one of the things you did when you were um, appointed as the interim president is that you established uh, a, um, a race and, and equity initiative here. Why was that important, and, and what is it that you were hoping to achieve? It's still ongoing. Yes. Well, in many ways, it came out of the events in our country last year that are still ongoing, the same events that gave rise to the Black Lives Matter movement. When we were seen, I mean, with our very eyes, because it was being captured um, by cell phones, uh, some of the really, uh, I mean, heavy-handed is, is, doesn't even begin to capture um, the, the techniques that, that law enforcement was using. Um, the fact that unarmed young black men um, we're getting shot. And that was, that hit our students very powerfully. But the way that I was seeing some of that treated by others was like, okay, this is the work of them, these awful bigots out there. And what we have to do is, you know, isolate those awful bigots and, you know, that we are above that, that, you know, good people don't do that. And I really believe that in order to move forward requires a lot more self-examination because it's not about them. It is, and I, I do research in this area, and it's almost impossible to grow up in this country or quite frankly almost anywhere in the world and not take in some of those biases that are part of our culture. And they're there and they affect the way we look at the world and the way we, we address each other. Uh, we have largely resegregated since the 70s. 
largely based on income, but income and cla class and race are so related in this country, such that a university is often by far the most diverse place that our students have ever lived. I think that's an enormous strength. I think that innovation springs when you have diverse cultures, diverse people, diverse disciplines coming together. But you can't take advantage of it if you don't know how to, you're not communicating each other, sometimes because you're a little scared, uh, maybe uh, someone that's uh, more traditionally white might be worried about saying the, right, the wrong thing, and then all of a sudden, how are they gonna view? Um, for a range of different reasons, um, we have all this diversity in our campus and are not really engaging with each other. And sometimes when we engage with each other, it can be very, very difficult. And so this was really about how do we help our students, our staff and our faculty, engage in dialogues that are very, very difficult, and, but that I think are very, very necessary for moving forward. It is hard to talk about race. It is. It really is. I mean, I think that people, as you mentioned, if someone may feel um, they don't want to talk about it because they may say they're, they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's not, that was one of the points I was really trying to make and will continue to make over and over again. It's not, yes, there are certainly bad, awful bigots out there. The biggest problems are good people, often, in fact, trying to do the right thing but in circumstances where lack of understanding, um, it makes it very difficult to connect. One of the things that we've been doing is having our students engage in roundtable conversations, but they're always, we always have a facilitator at the table to help when we do get to these issues. You had an experience in your life that affected your family tragically and dramatically and I'm sure it's still something you think about every day. Yep. The loss of your brother, yep. who was killed, murdered mm -hmm. by the Ku Klux Klan at a mm -hmm. rally in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. I remember that, actually, and I remember seeing the television coverage. Mm -hmm. How did that change you? How did that, your focus on what you wanted to do in life? You know, the changes in some ways are huge, in other ways small, and I, I suspect that at different points in my life, I will look at how it's changed me in, in different ways. Um, and by the way, what people can't see right now is just your face, because it, there's no doubt it still is there. The you know, it, 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 it hurts enormously. He, we were very close, I think partly because of the revolution. Um, you know, we were the ones who were adapting to a new life. And so, um, you know, we were extremely close. And so, you know, that, he was also, you know, my protective older brother. And, you know, it, whenever, Whenever either really good or really bad things happen in my life, I miss him enormously, you know, because I'd want to, you know, I mean, he'd, I, I know he'd be so proud um, of His me. name was Cesar. Cesar, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think, you know, there's part of what happens when you've 
dealt with something really, really difficult um, is that, you know, life doesn't scare me. You know, it's, I really do think that the most difficult thing in my life is behind me. And I draw inspiration from it. Uh, one of the things that at times people say about me is that, you know, I, I tend to engage even when people are in my face, you know, including student protesters, et cetera. Um, I can see my brother in them. And it, it, it helps me, I think, you know, reach out um, across a whole range of, of different positions. I, um, It'll make you stronger? It, yes, it makes me stronger, but it also makes me recognize my vulnerability more and um, also the, the kind of preciousness of, of human relationships uh, and the importance of connection. You know, I really try very hard to make sure that, you know, I let people that are important to me know that I care about them. Um, it's, you know, life is a very, very precious thing. Yeah, it can be short, very short. I wanted to come back to something about, in, in talking about the race and equity, um, the way campuses are today. Uh, I went to college at that other school across the mountains here. Uh, in the 70s, uh, but what, as I, I come to your campus quite a bit, mm -hmm. particularly when it's in session, and I see this diversity, Yeah. and I kind of wish that I would have been in school during that time, because I, I just think it would have been very different for me in, in many ways. Well, I think that we really do very much strive through a number of our recruitment programs like the Dream Project, et cetera, we care deeply about having this be a campus that anybody that works hard and is, you know, really determined um, can come to. And I don't, what, what worries me more than the diversity or lack of it on this campus, I think that um, we would really like to have, there are some areas where we're, where we're falling more short with African-American students. I think as the Latino population is growing, um, we, we have more Latinos, but you know, we, we can do better in, in any way, but is more, again, um, to have it, there, there's a book by a psychologist who was actually president of Spelman, that's Beverly Tatum, that's called, you know, why do all the black kids sit together in the cafeteria? And that's what, I want to make sure that we move across is that we don't have all this diversity, but then at the end of the day, everyone you know going back to their own group because then we're not taking um, full advantage. One of the things that was really very positive, I think, that came out of some of the early dialogues and that we hope to continue was that um, you know, there was a huge you know, kind of chasm between the fraternity sorority community and more of the students involved in Black Lives Matter, et cetera. And I think that the dialogue brought them closer together. And in fact, um, there, was a, the, there was a bit of a protest um, in front of the fraternities at the end of last year because uh, when the Black Lives Matter group was walking across campus, there was an epithet 
that came from the direction of fraternities. We still don't know whether it was a member or not, but it actually turned into a block party rather than because of all the work that had been done. And uh, I've been very, very impressed by the work that our student leaders across campus um, have really been doing to try and work together. What is the biggest challenge facing this university as you become the top dog? Well, I one of the things that I that keeps me up at night that makes me worry the most uh, is really about public research universities more generally, but this being a, 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 an incredible example of it. There really are only a handful of places left in the country that really do both access and excellence really well. Um, by doing access well, I mean having large numbers of students that are first generation, um, really being a place where um, you know, kids of modest means can become masters of the universe. But then also having the excellence, that's the part that then allows them to go off and be anybody they want to be. And um, I worry about that as state funding is getting tighter because of a lot of other, uh, a lot of other issues and causes weighing down on, um, on the budgets. But you know, that's, that's what I worry about the most. And it's not just this campus. Um, it's across the country. But I think that this university is so special in the fact that it does both well. I mean, not only are we number four in the world in terms of innovation or number 11 in the world in terms of you know, academic ranking, but we're also in the top 10 in terms of social mobility. Uh, New York Times uh, came out with a listing of the universities that do the most for low-income students, and we were in the top 15. It's that combination of being at the very top in terms of excellence, the very top in, in terms of access that's so incredibly special. And so how do we maintain that? And the fact is, is that this university, and I think all of them in the state, but this one in particular, um, is an economic uh, monster really for the state of Washington. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I should make it clear that I worry about all our four years and our community college system. Um, we have an amazing system of higher education in the state, not just the University of Washington, but all of us. And together, we're creating the future. And that is really important. As you go through this, this first year, first of all, it's got to be exciting. It is, absolutely. Now you're the, the permanent person in place and all of well, this. Well, nothing's permanent, but yeah, uh, I, I plan to be here a very good long time. <laughs> but how does that energy you might have in the morning when you wake up, what's that like? Oh, I mean, I really do love my job. I won't say that there aren't um, specific aspects now and then that, you know, you don't kind of clench your teeth and say, okay, you know, we're going to get through this, but the excitement of being on a college campus, I mean, the energy is all around you. There are, you know, I, I won't say that there aren't times when, you know, I get here very early and some days I go home very, very late 
And, you know, I'd look at my schedule and I'd go, how am I going to get through this? But you just the energy all around you just kind of lifts you up. This is a place of so much promise. Um, in terms of our students, in terms of the incredible work that our faculty is doing, um, we're changing the world. We're making the world a better place. And being a part of that, you know, is just so inspiring. Sound like a coach. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, I, I, I am in some ways the head cheerleader, yeah. um, which is something I had never done. <laughs> but also, it's not just that, you know, I, I'm a cheerleader for this place, but this place really inspires me. Anna Marikasi, congratulations uh, on becoming the uh, University of Washington's president. Good luck uh, in the days ahead. You, you got a lot of work, and we'll be talking more. Thank you very, very much. I look forward to our next meeting. Mm -hmm.